Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the FT Advisor podcast. I'm David Thorpe, Investment Editor at FT Advisor. Today we are discussing how to build a resilient equity portfolio suitable for the current deeply uncertain times. Joining me to discuss the outlook are Andrew Bell, Chief Executive of the Witan Investment Trust, Simon Doherty, who runs the Model Portfolio Service at Quilter Cheviot, and Andy Hall, who runs the Global Equity Fund at Invesco. Thank you all for joining me today. Andy from Invesco, if we start with you for the first question, what lessons from the last decade in equity markets can we take forward for the years to come when we're thinking about portfolio construction? Well, I think if we take a step back and think about the environment, the seeds for the last 10 years were probably set through the GFC. Um, and I think they, the the banking crisis that, that ended up requiring um, you know, 10 years of, of, of basically ultra-low interest rates as the banking system deleveraged basically um, allowed um, policymakers to sustain uh, rates of interest which were incredibly low. And I think the, the resulting impact of that has basically meant we've had, you know, um, this seeking yield amongst most investors. Um, and, and the effects of that yield seeking have really, really only come to sort of pass, I guess, as inflation has arisen post the pandemic. And obviously, subsequently, we've seen the Federal Reserve and other policymakers increase rates. And so I think the lessons, uh, frankly, have mostly been learned in the last sort of 12 to 18 months rather than over the last 10 years, and perhaps two or three that I'd pick out. The first one is the importance of, of investing in businesses that are genuinely sustainable in terms of their business models. Um, the period, you know, certainly um, in the few years leading into the pandemic and in that first year in 2020, post the pandemic, businesses that didn't actually generate sustainable operating profits um, performed remarkably well, um, even though there was little evidence in many cases that they were going to ultimately turn a profit. So I think the importance of making sure one invests in sustainable businesses is probably the first lesson um, that I think investors have learned. I think the second one is just the importance of of being prudently, conservatively financed. Um, When debt's free, it's very easy to leverage up and and create the illusion of high returns. Um, But truly sustainable businesses models you know do not require high levels of leverage and so perhaps that was the second lesson is making sure that you know the business models are um, able to weather um, higher levels of inflation and, and higher interest rates. Simon at Quilter Cheviot how do you uh, think about that? Yeah I think Andy's made some very pertinent points I was having a look at a few charts you know just over the course of the last decade and you know trends work and they work very well until they don't. So I think from a portfolio construction perspective, you know, testing your thesis of why you hold particular stocks, why you're potentially weighted towards a, a particular factor or style, um, it's always worth keeping sight of, of the relative risk that you're taking as well. And just ensuring that that thesis for the company or companies that you own, you know, continue to stack up and that those companies are well run for the foreseeable, um, not just, you know, in the uh, position of, of benefiting from a short term trend. So I think that's a really important lesson to learn in terms of, you know, a lesson to take forward uh, for the decade ahead. Andrew, um, I know that you in, in, uh, at Witan, you, you buy other funds as mm-hmm. well as some direct equities. But over the past decade, what, what, is, what have you learned? Well, we've been living through a period, as was said earlier on, of virtually zero cost of capital. And, uh, you know, r- rising tides tend to float all boats, but not everything that comes in on a rising tide is desirable, particularly around British beaches, as we're regularly told. 
And so the, the real lesson that I think's come home over the last year and a half or so is that valuation matters. Uh, last year, as an example, the, the longest dated UK index link gilt, which has a guarantee of inflation protection, uh, fell by more than the price of Bitcoin, which has a guarantee of nothing. So what the price you pay is a huge determinant of the returns you're going to get, not just the characteristics of what you buy. All three of you have mentioned uh, the, the market conditions of, of the past decade and how many stocks or, or companies or investments performed well without any um, discernible uh, profit or, or, in some cases, uh, revenue. Another feature of, of that time, really, Andrew, was that a relatively small number of tech stocks, including mm-hmm. many that were profitable and large household name companies, performed very well. And many had the the market view that this would be a year when when those things would do less well and mm-hmm. other shorter duration assets would do would do better, but it's been a feature maybe certainly of the last month or two that that narrow range of tech stocks in the U.S. have started to do mm-hmm. a little bit better, but they did fall last year. Is it time to look at those things as value well, again? Well, it certainly was in January. In retrospect, I think a combination of a big derating last year. And the evidence that we've seen recently that the profit growth has been coming through quite strongly, even for the, from the more mature uh, of, of the tech stocks, the fangs. Um, so, so people have been attracted by, they've been going back, if you like, to the comfort blanket that's for most of the last six or seven years has, has served portfolio as well. And uh, so buying them at a sort of discount rating, riding the back of a couple of quarters of decent earnings has obviously been the place to be. I think people, you know, some of those tech stocks are, are mature and maturing and will be will be tomorrow's cyclicals and what i suppose the 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 attraction is is finding the growth stocks of the future but also keeping in mind the relative value of less glamorous stocks which might be available very cheaply last 6 or 7 years all people wanted was the the Kardashians, if you like, of the of the investment world, and 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 everybody else who was just the sort of the you know the the, the local champions were were, were disregarded. So I, you know, I think people have to keep a sense of value. Andrew, of all of the guests that we've ever had, I think you're the one I least expected <laughs> to mention the Kardashians in this in in this context. But uh, well done, um, Simon. Again, I know you you buy you buy funds more than more than direct equities, but some of the funds that rode that wave of, of equity to the of technology equity to the top uh fallen out of favor with some investors but are you looking back at those again yeah we are we never really left them um and i think you know we we do we do reflect a lot of our um our ideas in that space through direct equities and i guess just to pick up on one of the themes that have been discussed you know you look at 2022 if you didn't hold energy um, you were toast, quite frankly, in, in terms of, you know, your returns versus, um, you know, major indices. Equally, if you were heavily overweight tech, um, you had a very difficult period. That doesn't mean that those companies stop being good companies overnight. It just highlighted the risk you're, you're taking in terms of the balance within your portfolio if you, if you were that skewed one way. So we, I think the short answer is we, we never really left them. Uh, a lot of those companies do continue to be very innovative um, and do continue to demonstrate, you know, some attractive growth profiles, um, you know, regardless of their size. So I, I think it, it definitely merits continuing to, to retain exposure. But you just have to look at the the market um, uh, market leadership this year and just how swiftly things have been rotating back and forth um, to show that you know we are in a bit of a period of flux in terms of the outlook from here. 
Um, and having buckets in your portfolio that perform in different conditions is, we think, a, a pretty sensible thing to do. Um, but one of those buckets certainly is that is that type of company. Andy from Invesco, uh, are you looking at those tech things afresh? Yeah, look, we never, um, a little bit like Simon said, to be honest, we never stopped looking at them. We've, we've had a big position in Microsoft for the last um, five or six years. We've got um, positions in Apple, Amazon, um, and Alphabet as well. And I think that the, the, the common observation I'd make about these businesses are, you know, they are highly embedded in their customers' workflows. If you think about Apple, you wake up in the morning, what's the first thing you do? You, you probably open your iPhone. And frankly, the last thing you do at night is you set your alarm on your iPhone. Um, you know, these businesses are so plumbed into the day-to-day operations of their customers, whether they're consumers or businesses. And and I think I also agree with the point that someone made, they, they're highly innovative. Um, and I think if I think about the competitive backdrop, one of the aspects of free money for the last 10 years has been a lot of um, potential creative destruction um, was allowed in. So lots of innovative new companies that were able to finance themselves very cheaply um, were potentially competitive threats. However, I do think in this world of rising interest rates and more constrained capital, you could argue, certainly in areas like payments, where it was a particular issue, some of these competitors are arguably going to be a little more constrained from here, which I think leaves those incumbent operators um, in, an, in arguably a very strong position to keep on reinvesting and, and staying ahead of the game. And can I, can I just add to that, that what happened was at the tail end of last year, as the price of capital began to go up and, uh, and slightly harder times began to face uh, the economy as a whole, a lot of these tech companies did what cyclical companies elsewhere have had to do f- for ages and started laying off some of their spare labor. They, they, you know, and, and if you like, managing for profitability. So you hit the beginning of this year you were able to buy growth which was being underpinned by cost discipline at a lower rating. And you know, as I agree with the comments that were made that, for the, that many of these companies are innovative. The only real learning point of the last couple of years is don't get too carried away by, don't, don't go for the growth and for the, um, the hyped-up rating. You just have to keep an, an eye of when it's right to buy and when it's right to sell those stocks, as for anything. Thank you. Um, Simon, you mentioned in your, your previous answer the idea that we've had a lot of flux and last year energy was the only game in town, maybe the year before that tech was the only game in town. In such a world of flux, what does a diversification in an equity allocation look like right now? So I think, you know, there's a, there's a number of number of considerations. Um, geographics one, but I, I think equally, you know, don't don't believe that just because you're geographically diversified, you're diversified from a, a factor perspective or a sector perspective. Um, so I think that's one consideration. But I, I think, you know, going back to the point I raised earlier, that, you know, in a market environment where, you know, we get off to a very, very strong start in January, you know, both in bonds and equities to then be, you know, quite curtailed in, in February as economic data looked strong, um, inflation reared its ugly head. We then had March, obviously, you know, the second largest um, banking failure in the US in, in history. Um, that's that's really led to, to an uncertain outlook. Um, and I think, you know, it's important not to bet the farm on a particular sector. And, and from our perspective, certainly, it's, it's not necessarily taking a, a huge position from a sector perspective, um, or indeed looking more broadly, you know, from an asset allocation perspective, um, but actually just trying to identify, you know, quality 
security selection ideas at at the sector level and having conviction that your uh, that your individual recommendations and ideas there are going to uh, are going to come out well so i think you know looking at things like um pricing power with inflation you know as 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 kind of heightened as it is at the moment making sure that as a company you know you're well run operationally you're efficient you've got strong brands um you know you have strong presence in the markets in which you're operating um but that you are are protecting your profitability by the ability to pass on mm-hmm. um price increases that for us is is one of the key considerations when looking at at, at company selection andy what does the diversification look like in your in your global equity strategy right now yeah, well, I think diversification is, is one element of, of the whole risk management piece. I mean, risk management is multifaceted, and one of the ways you control risk is by making sure you're diversified. And as Simon said, sector um, and geography is one element of that diversification. But there are there are others. Um, you know, for example, let's think about geopolitical risk. I mean, for the first time in many years, we now have to worry about this decoupling of the US and China. How is that going to manifest itself on which sectors, particularly areas like semiconductors? Um, so thinking about certain scenarios about what might happen between China and the US, how that might affect companies like TSMC, what the knock-on effects of that are onto the semiconductor supply chain. So diversification, I think, is multifaceted. Um, you know, thinking about the debt ceiling, for example, as, a, as an idiosyncratic risk that might affect the US um, specifically. So we're constantly trying to think about these scenarios, how they play out, and just making sure that one particular scenario doesn't have the capacity to unzip the overall performance of the portfolio. Thank you. Andrew, I know that you, the Witam portfolio is based on investing in mm-hmm. in third-party um, funds. Very much so. But, it, but that's, you know, what, what matters with any portfolio is what are you buying, where is it, who's buying it, and what are they paying? What are you buying defends you against either you have to be buying companies which are doing something useful uh, in a in an honourable way with sound management and sound finances, you, you, the reason for geography mattering is partly because what are the local economic conditions, but also you get revolutions, you get wars, you might get expropriated. So diversity across that is matters. You want to avoid a single mindset, whether it's choosing a multi-manager approach such as Witten's or whether it's within a team all thinking the same way. You want to avoid groupthink because people do get locked. People drink their own Kool-Aid and then they, they, the outcomes can be bad for investors. And finally, uh, what you pay matters as well. So I think all of those things, di- di- diversification is, 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 uh, has sometimes been abused as being diversification, but that's only if you buy everything irrespective. But if, you, if you're too exposed to one particular theme, geography or, or individual company, then you're, you're vul- you, you, might, you might really shoot the lights out, but you might lose your money. <laughs> Thank you. Um, Andy, when putting a portfolio together, if, if, uh, if one of the things you wanted to do was um, be a little bit more defensive or, or lower beta for, for a period of time. Um, what does a defensive equity holding look like right now in a world where inflation's going up? So maybe some of the things that are often regarded as defensive, which are otherwise known as bond proxies, maybe don't look that defensive if inflation's rising, although Unilever's results indicate maybe they are. But what does what does defensive look like in this world? Yeah, I mean, one of the one of the lessons I, I learned 
uh, in my earlier years was was basing an investment decision in a stock on a particular macro view is normally very dangerous. So we try and avoid um, implementing macro views in terms of our stock selection. I do think, you know, as you say, we're in an environment where we were we had this very low and crucially stable inflationary regime for many many years, and we're now in this environment where inflation is higher and, and more volatile. Um, and I think, as Simon said earlier, one of the things I would point out is that probably your best protection against inflation is making sure you invest in businesses that can sustainably reinvest at attractive rates of return. Ultimately, the compounding you receive and as, as an investor is going to be driven by the reinvestment rate those individual companies can reinvest capital at. So we're looking for attributes like pricing power. You know, if you've got a relatively strong market position and crucially, your customers absolutely need your product. So for example, the rating agencies like Moody's and Standard & Poor's, if you're running a bond portfolio, you cannot live without those ratings. They have pricing power as a result. So these are the sort of businesses that will protect you more in an inflationary world. The risk, as Andrew's pointed out on several occasions here, is you need to be careful about threading the needle on valuation because these businesses do tend to command high-ish multiples. Mm -hmm. So our job as investors is to make sure we select those good businesses without overpaying. Simon, presumably at Culture Chief, you have clients with different risk profiles. When you're looking at the client with the with the lower tolerance for risk, what does an equity allocation look like within that framework right now? It, it looks broadly similar to the characteristics of a of an investor with a with a higher risk profile. It tends to be more at the asset allocation that we we manage that risk. But I think in terms of the the overall you know profile of what we're seeking to achieve, you know, a, a lot of the the points have already been highlighted. Um, you know. I think valuation is is very very important, and you know valuation is is something that you can lose sight of. You know you can find perpetual you know reasons to to justify a valuation on the way up. That you know I hate to use the term this time is different, but you know it's it's human nature to think well, you know I'm very anchored to this theme, this stock, it's going to to the moon, and you know I can I can justify that valuation. That is that is an inherent bias that I think you know all of us are are very very um you know uh, prone to and something that you know a good process does its best to eliminate so i think at the moment you know a, a balance of of sectors um a balance of themes companies that are not just necessarily paying a dividend but growing a dividend in some instances you know that that is very important in a you know i think in the current environment um but also you know there are still companies that you want to to to, to buy that are in the growth phase and and are reinvesting capital um you know and that's absolutely the right thing to do so uh, i think you know coming back to a, a bit of a consistent theme here at this stage given the the uncertainty and um you know what what is being faced at, at this point in time we are leaning into that security selection but but not taking a huge a huge sector position at this stage Thank you. Um, and Andrew, if you did want to add a, a defensive type fund or exposure, yeah. what, what would you? What well, would you yes, I mean, I, I suppose defensiveness tends to be the intersection of, sort of growth, predictability and value. And in, in defensive times, people tend to go for the predictability and value bits and they're less inclined to chase the valuations or the excitement of the moonshot stocks. But not to be defensive, not everything you hold has to be defensive. And the other aspect is that sometimes it's, it can be more defensive to buy uh, companies which may be inherently cyclical, but, but where the market is too gloomy on the prospects. And I just highlight infrastructure spending, uh, climate transition spending, 
and the last defence spending over over the next four or five years are likely to be things which are going to be driven by uh, by political imperatives and where the growth numbers for, for companies exposed to that may be better than people think. But many of them are cyclical stocks. Um, I'd, I'd be looking to be a bit contrarian too. I think just to pick up on that point, you know, if you look at Q4 of last year and that market nadir, Andrew's absolutely right. You know, there are a lot of good companies, um, you know, thrown out with the general market shaker that didn't stop being good companies overnight, um, where the valuation had got ahead of itself. But there are some real long term structural growth opportunities there. And being able to pick those up at relatively attractive valuations at a point where the market is very much in in risk off mode, investor sentiment is 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 close to its nadir, you know, is is a, a, a call that is going to put you in very good stead, I think, for for the foreseeable you know time. So I think that that's another important um, investor discipline to hold on to. And Simon, to follow up on one of the points you made earlier about about dividends in that long period. Uh, post-GFC, which might become known to history as the QE era. Dividends di- didn't seem to matter. People were, even the profitable uh, tech companies and, and others that, that did well were not really necessarily chucking off big dividends. Nobody seemed to care because you didn't have to. If the stock was mm. going up 20%, you were quite happy uh, with that. But in the era that's that's ahead of us, how much of a premium should be given to dividend-paying companies? It's a very good question. I mean, if you actually look at as you said, you know, companies paying a dividend haven't necessarily had a premium for, for, for a long time. You know, you only have to look at the UK stock market, for instance, one of the highest yielding markets, you know, in the world. And, and from, you know, plethora of factors, it's it's trading at, at a very low um, relative valuation. But I think, you know, dividend paying is a, is sign, is a sign of, of, you know, sensible, um, shareholder-friendly management of a company. Now, it's it's not a case of just, you know, rushing for the highest-paying um, stock. It's about sustainable dividends. It's about growing dividends. Um, it's about sensible capital allocation. It's about share buybacks in other instances as well. I think just you know, understand understanding that a company is is well managed, um, and that you know has shareholders at its uh, core in terms of um, you know how it how it spends its money and how it distributes um, its money. It's 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 very much an important factor. So I think it's definitely a consideration. It's not the overarching be all and end all, but it is definitely something to factor in an investment thesis. Andrew, I know that one of the characteristics or features of the Witan Investment Trust is that it's had many years of mm-hmm. consecutive dividend increases. I'm sure you're going to remind <laughs> us how many years that is in a minute. But how do you strike that balance between buying a thing that can go up and buying a thing that will that that will that you can clip a dividend from? Well, yes, 48 years, which is actually the length of time since I left university, which is a humbling thought. Um, the I think the, the the first point to make is that total return is what matters, generally speaking, in investment terms. Although, obviously, people who are at the stage of living off their savings, it's uh, having, having running income is a handy way of being able to leave your capital working rather than having to sell a few hundred shares every month to fund your spending commitments. So uh, from our point of view, it's a good reality check that what you own is a cash generative portfolio which got good governance where the cash benefits of the business are being shared, uh, distributed to shareholders or invested on their behalf rather than just being spent on vanity projects. So it's a, it's a quality check and I think uh, it helps people to hold on through thick and thin to an investment rather than being uh, unduly 
uh, frightened, if you like, by the the Alton Towers switchback of uh, of the of, of of the capital volatility of an of an investment. So it helps you hold on. And one of the biggest things in investment, particularly for personal investors, is is escaping from your own, your own psychology, thinking you're an investment genius when the markets have just doubled, and then selling out at the bottom before you lose all your money. And dividends help you to protect against that. Andy, it has felt, I think, for many investors like they could choose to have something that paid a dividend or choose to have something that goes up. Are we getting close to a point where, heaven help us, we can have we can have something that goes up and pays a dividend? And and how do you uh, how do you seek those sort of companies? I mean, I certainly agree with the comments that have been made about about the role that dividends can play in a portfolio. But I do always look at um, some examples where one has to be careful about anchoring to an attractive dividend yield. I mean, when I started in the city in 2000, uh, GlaxoSmithKline was was selling for roughly the same share price it is today. Um, now it was selling um, for an optically low PE multiple at a five percent dividend yield at the time. But over the last sort of twenty three years, you actually haven't made a return from the shares. You've only made a return on that five percent coupon. Um, now. The fundamental problem is that you do the dividend is reliant upon the ability of the business to productively reinvest cash flows to grow, um, and so I think my my one sort of learning from looking at dividend paying companies is make sure that you are investing in those that are still redeploying a portion of their capital on productively reinvesting, and that will ultimately sustain dividend growth. And I think the combination <laughs> of growth and a dividend is more likely to lead to a happy outcome. Thank you for that, Andy Hall, who runs the Global Equity Fund at Invesco. And thank you to Andrew Bell, Chief Executive of the Witten Investment Trust, and Simon Doherty, who runs the Model Portfolio Service at Quilter Cheviot. Thank you all for joining me today. And please do remember to tune in to future editions of the FT Advisor podcast. Goodbye.